Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey guys, welcome. On February 8th, something really quite extraordinary happened at just a typical chapel service held on a typical Wednesday morning at Asbury University in Kentucky. After the speaker encouraged, and I'll quote him, he encouraged the students to become the love of God by experiencing the love of God. About 20 students stayed after just to pray for each other. But during that time, they reported just a surreal peace that enveloped them. Those minutes turned into hours, which turned into weeks, and those days or those students were joined by countless others who wanted to continue that time of worship. It should come as no surprise to us that um, what has been termed as the Asbury Revival went viral. And while not able to visit in person, people from all around the world have been able to get a glimpse into this inexplicable event. And I say inexplicable if you don't believe in God. Now, there are quite a couple, there are quite a few aspects of revival, though, that I want to just pick apart a little bit in reference to what's been going on with Asbury. Um, So Jim, can you maybe just start off with just answering a really, maybe I'm going to say basic, maybe not basic, but just to start off by talking about what actually is a revival? Yeah. Uh, Ari Davies, in his article on spiritual revival in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, gave what I thought was probably one of the best definitions and, and one that's fairly standard and classic. And, and he writes that the classic understanding of a revival is a period of unusual and heightened spiritual activity uh, among believers that has been brought about by a renewing and empowering work of the Holy Spirit, uh, bringing a new sense of the presence of God, and particularly in regard to holiness. Uh, resulting in a deeper awareness of sin in the life of the believer, uh, followed by joy as that sin is confessed and and forgiven. And that's often followed by then witness to other people who are not Christians, uh, but both nominal Christians and outsiders, but a witness to others, bringing them and hopefully to a similar experience of confession and repentance and and faith. That's the classic understanding of a revival. Okay, so you mentioned that Revivals occur among believers, and yet the impact of them certainly isn't limited to just believers or, you know, the faith of the already convinced. And so can you give us insight into how God uses revivals or has used revivals? Like for what purpose outside of just the a believer's kind of everyday call? Yeah, well, I mean, let me let me kind of keep this to uh, uh, the North American context. I mean, we could walk through revivals in Scripture. Uh, and you know, many would say that what happened with Nehemiah was a revival and other things. I mean, you can, you can chart this throughout, but let's just say, let's talk about North American context. And I think that's easier for people to see what the effects of this is. is. Uh, twice in North American history, there have been uh, what can truly be called national revivals, twice. Uh, the first began in 1729 when a small band of young um Men at Oxford University in England began to meet and pray and study the word, uh, led by such luminaries as John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, uh, who spearheaded the Methodist movement. And that had an American colonial counterpart 
in the Methodist revival that was taking place in the British Isles under Wesley, uh, and the American counterpart has become known as the Great Awakening. Uh, and the event was chronicled by and led uh, by one of America's most brilliant minds, Jonathan Edwards, uh, but soon spread beyond the confines of his parish ministry. Appearing first in the 1720s as a series of almost like regional awakenings under the preaching ministry of George Whitfield, who was a friend of Wesley. Uh, these regional revivals coalesced into a, a, a great awakening that arguably lasted until the time of the American Revolution. Uh, the dynamic was very clear. People were apart from God. People apart from God were in trouble. Uh, and they were just one prayer away from rescue. Uh, the whole emphasis was on being born again. Uh, obviously, the phrase born again was not an invention of 18th century revivalism. It's deeply rooted in, in the Gospel of John, particularly. It dates back to Jesus' words as recorded in John 3 in the New Testament. But this is when, when that phrase, if you will, and that whole vibe, that dynamic broke on the American shores and became part of American Christianity, where we talk about being born again. You know, that was, that's where it kind of became this Americanism almost. The Great Awakening is sometimes called the First Great Awakening because it was followed in 1806 by uh, the Second Great Awakening, uh, which found its roots in what was known as the Haystack Prayer Meeting, which was five college guys who were meeting at Williams College, or they were at Williams College in Massachusetts. And uh, it was given the name Haystack Revival because of the momentous night when the Holy Spirit blew through their lives. They were forced into a barn by a thunderstorm, and they found themselves praying under a haystack. Um, among that group was Samuel Mills, who became one of the founders of the American Bible Society. You also had among those five uh one of the first of five missionaries that had ever gone to India. Um, I actually spoke on the college, on the campus of, of Williams College at the invitation of the C.S. Lewis Foundation uh, at the, um, to commemorate the 200th anniversary of the Haystack mm -hmm. Revival. It was quite an experience. Um, but these revivals um, produced unprecedented mass evangelism, uh, groundbreaking missionary activity, and significant social change throughout North America. Uh, Nathan Hatch goes further, contends that from that became this wave of popular religious movements that broke on the United States in the half century after independence uh, that really moved to Christianize society more than just about anything else. And he says that religious leaders, largely through the first Great Awakening and then later through the second Great Awakening as well, but they began to operate outside normal frameworks uh, to develop large followers to the democratic art of persuasion, uh, which really goes back, if, if you know your history, all the way back to the Puritans uh, and how they introduced kind of this free market entrepreneurial type of expression uh, to America and fleeing the state church of England. But anyway, so you had like the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and you also had this revivalism breaking out too. I wouldn't call it a third great awakening, but something that was uh, maybe concurrent with the second great awakening and flowed out of it, which was the whole camp meetings oh, yeah. dynamic which is rooted in Methodism and, and, and was um, championed by Francis Asbury. Interesting, another Methodist. By the way, you're seeing a string of Methodists in all this because um, you had um, John Wesley, instrumental with the First Great Awakening, Francis Asbury, very instrumental with the camp meetings, and of course, what we're talking about, Asbury's Methodist school. Um, but, you know, Jonathan Edwards was, would not have been. So this was, this was spread around pretty freely, but uh, very strong kind of uh, 
Armenian as Asbury Methodist type of string to revivals. Um, and, um, but it initially was met with great skepticism by Methodist authorities. Camp meetings, they felt like encouraged this kind of uncensored, unsupervised uh, kind of testimonials. People could just share their testimony, which was like, wait a minute, we're losing control. Uh, the public sharing of private ecstasy or overt physical display and all these emotional responses that were happening in these camp meetings and this loud and direct response to preaching. People would like, you know, someone would preach and they would say, like, you know, yay, you go, you know, <laughs> and, and, the use of, and the use of, get this, folk music. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that uh, one person said they, the use of music that would have chilled the bones of Charles Wesley, um, even though. Um, uh, so anyway. Um, that was uh, John Wesley's brother, and Charles Wesley wrote a lot of the music that we, we some of the great hymns, but uh, he never wrote any folk music like was used in the camp meetings. But the camp meetings brought together uh, three to four million Americans annually. And you think back to that era and what percentage of the population that was. That was staggering. That was a, like about a third of the entire population of the continent yeah. of our nation. About a third were involved in camp meetings. Uh, it was a phenomenally successful um, instrument for popular recruitment. And um, Asbury just simply talked about it as fishing with a big net. I mean, that's why he, he'd like to talk about it, fishing with a large net. And so it was an audience-centered approach, uh, and the church prospered greatly. Um, but this evangelical call, this revivalistic call for an immediate and instantaneous conversion to Christ uh, continued throughout the 19th century in camp meetings and revivals and classrooms all across America. But back to your, your point on social change, um, probably the most significant social change of all was how the first great awakening and the second great awakening and the revivals typified by camp meetings uh, raced through white and black lives. Uh. And Christianity did become the faith of choice for many, if not most of the American slave community. Um, it has been noted by many historians that it was the Great Awakening and the revivals that followed that began to purify uh, and convict, admonish um, the distortions that had entered the thinking of white Christians about the ethics of slavery. Uh, a black man and a white man both becoming born again at the foot of the cross began to erode uh, support for slavery and was the seedbed for much of the abolitionist movement. You wouldn't have had the, it's been argued, and I think successfully, that you wouldn't have had the abolitionist movement, um, you know, among, you know, white evangelicals, white Christians, without, you know, the first and second great awakening and the camp meetings, particularly when you had blacks converting whites through the revivals and whites converting blacks. So uh, the, the social change was, was quite profound. It's interesting that you mentioned that the camp meetings were initially received by a bit of skepticism, because I feel like that's what we're seeing now, even with the Asbury revival, is that you have some people who think like, this could be another great awakening. And then you have other people thinking, this is just, you know, another emotional like kind of reaction. It doesn't have all the traditional marks of revival. So I'm curious, what do you think? Oh, I don't think there's any sign of this being anything akin to another Great Awakening. Okay. Nothing along that scope or that 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 scale. Um, but uh, but it's more than just emotionalism that was taking place there. So uh, what I'm prepared to do at this particular point, you know, is just call it a small R revival. Mm -hmm. um, it was real. It was sincere by all accounts. Uh, you know, it, it, it seemed clearly spirit led and spirit infused for the majority that were there. Um, 
either there were some that wanted to cherry pick how some people were playing off of it or what some, you know, but I mean, I mean, you, if you just kind of take it as a whole and give some benefit of the doubt and some umbrella of grace for what was happening within the lives of these college students. And during that time, I think that you just simply say, well, that was just a yay God moment and a spirit thing. But uh, to call it the next great awakening is, 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 would be far too premature and already shows no signs of that being the case. Um, but, uh, I think what you really had was you had, it was indicative of how hungry people are, mm. how spiritually hungry they are for something transcendent, for something that's, 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 um, that really is not of this world. And, and, it, and, and, um, and for, for spiritual authenticity and, and, you know, to some kind of a, a sense of really encountering this for their life. And, and it just shows how, how hungry people were and, um, and we can we can kind of talk about all the spiritual tourists that descended that kind of made a mess of it, but um, but yeah, I, I that's would be how I'd answer your question. Sure. Well, and just it, for just for clarification's sake, you've been talking about the Asbury revival in past tense, and in case you, our listeners are not up to date, on February twenty eighth, the Asbury University officials did like officially end the revival in a matter of speaking, so it's not still taking place. We'll come back to that in a minute, but I, first. I want to get your thoughts on the digital component of the revival, because that is a modern phenomenon. That's not something that was a part of even small or lowercase r revivals in the past. And in fairness, Asbury didn't, so they did end up starting a live stream of the revival, but that was mostly out of necessity because so many people were inundating this very small town. And so they did, yeah, start this live stream. And so with the, the live stream kind of coupled with all of like the cell phone videos that people were, t- were taking and posting, we did get a peek at least into what was happening there. Um, and I, I read Thomas Lyons. He is a reporter of The Atlantic. He was um, reporting on the revival. He'd been there a couple of times. And he remarked that although the glimpses of the kind of transcend transcendental nature of the experience could be witnessed digitally, it couldn't be personally grasped. So I'm curious, what do you think about that? No, I think that's true. I think if anyone's ever experienced anything um, similar, and and many have, I mean, Asbury was was seems unique, but it's it's really not unique. It's just that it was more heavily reported on. Uh, instances of of that and those kinds of experiences are happening even as we speak all over the world. It's just that they're not we, that we don't aren't aware of them. And I know that you and I and other Christians could probably look back on various moments and, and experiences that we've had that were just spirit drenched. There's just almost no way to experience what, what it was. And you could have filmed it, but it was very different than experiencing it because obviously the film, you know, does, didn't convey that. So yes, I would agree with, with the assessment, but I would also believe that it is doubtful as I've kind of alluded to that we would be talking about this apart from social media. Right. Um, I, I just don't think that we would. Um, I think that the people there at Asbury did an admirable job of trying to make it um, not make it a place for selfies. Mm-hmm. And when, and I, you know, I, I don't know who they were talking about. And it's probably best that I don't, but I was, I was hearing that they were keeping Christian celebrities away that apparently Christian celebrities wanted to come and almost capitalize on it and show up and Hey, let us speak or let us sing or let us whatever and get our name attached to this. And I just thought that was, well, this is why it's good that I don't know their names. I found that loathsome. I found that I found that I found this like what? What are you? What? Sure. It's like, and um, so I'm glad that they they didn't let it be co-opted that way. Um, but um, uh, so I think they did an admirable job of that. But spiritual tourists did not do an admirable job 
and um, and it was just just besieged by people who just heard something was going there, and they just just began going there, like, hey, well, let's just go, let's just check it out, let's find out what's going on, and um, so. Um, so, so yeah. Well, so on that note, and I mean, you, we did talk about this briefly on our live um, podcast episode a couple of weeks ago, but I, I want to get maybe even more of your thoughts on like how informative we should view revivals, specifically, you know, the simplistic nature of the Asbury revival has caused many to criticize churches that have, you know, more bells and whistles in their services. So could you comment or just kind of talk more broadly on how much revivals should inform how we do ministry kind of on a day-to-day basis. I've got such a collection of thoughts <laughs> as you voice that question. Um, I, I think it's misguided to take any revival at any point in history, uh, in the biblical records or in the post-canonical uh, era, and uh, whether it's the Great Awakenings to camp meetings and, and, and try to boil down methods or, or stylistic guidelines or anything else like, like, OK, this is what you do if it's going to be true revival or this is what you have to do if it's really going to be the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is what you need to do. Almost make it a formulaic or make it, uh, you know, like and, or use it as a bludgeon against anything that was different than that particular thing. And, and I think that that's, um, as you alluded to, Asbury was very stripped down, mm-hmm. purposefully devoid of celebrities and big production and, and well-known speakers on the circuit. And, and many um, then used that, as I said, like as, as a bludgeon against anything with production values, you know, or anything with, with you know, uh, where maybe they took time to tune the guitar on the front end. Um, and, and I think that's very misguided. And I don't think that's the point. I think that was, I, I, I remember, I remember tweeting at the time, so many people were, were seeing this, seeing kind of what was happening with those, with those college kids, and then began to just instantly seize that and just use it as something as a, as a baseball bat to beat up against any type of form or person or movement or denomination or theology they didn't like. It was everywhere. It's like, you saw people who were, um, who, who said, oh, I, this is happening at a Methodist school. Methodists are bad. They're Arminians. You got to be a Calvinist if you're going to be Orthodox. So this is bad before they even knew this is bad. And, and, and so there's not of God. <laughs> I just went, oh my gosh, you know, and then others were saying, we'll see how this is just a couple of guitars or nothing production and, you know, and, 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 you know, just lay speakers getting up. So therefore everything, large churches or other types of things, concerts, whatever, bad, 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 bad. And I remember tweeting at the time, instead of using what's happening at Asbury to beat up on people, just let it beat up on your own heart. Mm. Just golly, can we just stop it? Yeah. Like, why are we instantly so adversarial and cantankerous and so just, oh, my gosh. And and it's just, I mean, you want a sign of what's not of the Holy Spirit? That's a sign of what's not of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that kind of division, that kind of rancor, that kind of pride and arrogance and, and everything else. So um, uh, I, I think we have to be very, very careful about that. Um, and even just like look at like like look at something like camp meetings. Mm-hmm. Camp meetings are wonderful. We're wonderful. But does that mean that you have to have a camp meeting now? Right. Literally a camp meeting and follow that same format and do that same kind of music and have those same kinds of speakers. Or, or should you be like Jonathan Edwards, who who I think I, I can't remember. I did this or not, but you mentioned that our live podcast when I was getting asked questions. You want to you want to preach like Jonathan Edwards to, to be authentic. OK, well, he was blind, <laughs> <laughs> just about blind. So he held it up in front of his face like this, the manuscript and read it kind of in a monotone without even looking at the audience. And he, and, you know, I mean, it's just, it's crazy to start doing it that way. 
This is about the Holy Spirit blowing uh, free and wild and, and human hearts in response to that free and wild blowing and movement of the Holy Spirit who does whatever he wants to do and, and tends to do things in very radically different ways and, than, 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 and every time differently in, in many ways uh, akin to the work in the Holy Spirit. I mean, and one of the things that I always tell uh, my um, seminary students when you're interpreting scripture, like, and this is also true for history, but let's just because stick with scripture. Be really careful that you don't take narrative portions of scripture and, and treat them like didactic portions of scripture. And I would say the same thing about narrative sections of history and maybe what could be didactic sections of sure. history. For example, a narrative section would be how Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. And that's just a narrative. It's just simply saying this is what happened with Paul and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, and this is what happened. Now, if you were to take that narrative section and make it didactic, you would say, therefore, everybody should be saved this way. And if you weren't blind for three days, you haven't really been saved uh, because that's the that's how it's happened. Well, that, that would be crazy. That would be a, a terrible injustice of what a narrative is versus didactic, where which is didactic is you must be born again. Yeah. You know, that's a didactic statement sure. um, or the Ten Commandments, didactic statements, not narrative sections. And so much of the work of the Holy Spirit, since we're talking about that in the opening chapters of Acts, were narrative. Mm -hmm. He did this, he did that, he did this, he did this, he did that. And people are trying to follow up all those narrative things and trying to make didactic stuff out of it. When it's like, no, you want didactic, wait until the early church settled down, Pentecost, you know, everything kind of settled down and you began to have the teaching of Paul coming up behind all of that where he was making didactic statements about the, 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 the person and, and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and which was also inspired by the Holy Spirit, I might add. So take the didactics. Um, and so what we would do with throughout church history is, is that there's so much about the first and great awakening, the second great awakening, that's wonderful narrative, and, um, and it can be informative, but not normative. Yeah. Because it's just what the Holy Spirit did. And, and I would argue that the Holy Spirit works through all different kinds of approaches, all different kinds of music, all different kinds of gatherings, all different kinds of production values, all different kinds of all kinds of things. And just because there was this uh, particular uh, event of that arrested a lot of people's attention, that had a certain vibe to it to immediately extrapolate from that. Well, this is not only what you should do, but we're going to let this be a critique of everything that's not done this way to me is incredibly misguided and and uh, not the way to engage this or interpret this. I mean, I totally get how this mistake can be made because, I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of something like that? Like, who doesn't want to bring about something like this in their own church or Christian community? And so I think that that's, what happening, that's what's happening is that we're looking at this and people are thinking, well, how, how can we make this happen? Like, how can we experience something like this? And so I know you said that this is a Holy Spirit-led ordeal, but does humanity play any role in kind of the beginning phases of a revival? Oh, I want to say so much right now. Oh my goodness. I, I mean, it's like you're, you're just, you're just, for me, this is almost like a red meat question okay. that you're throwing. These periods occur from time to time in history of the church. They cannot be predicted. They cannot be produced. Uh, however, when they do occur, it's often noted that believers have been praying for such a work for some time and such praying, which is often corporate in nature and usually intense and uh, protracted uh, in nature, not merely private or individualistic. It's often the first result of a new work of the Holy Spirit. So you, you can kind of say like, was this, can you, can you produce this? Well, 
no, but can you produce this? You can ask for it through prayer and that prayer usually is what precedes it. So it's one of those, you know, dynamics. But uh, Charles Finney, who died in 1875, had a, had a, he did have a view he was someone who was a very famous evangelist who was involved in many revivals who felt like uh, they, it could be produced. But but his whole thing was it's largely through repentance. If we could just, you know, if we repent, I mean, that's going to trigger this, obviously. And and um, and uh, the use of effective evangelistic means. I mean, it's like, hey, just if we're evangelistic and if we're intentional about this, then revival is going to break out because the Holy Spirit wants to show up when that's happening. And that's why revivals, <laughs> became synonymous with evangelistic emphases. And if you grew up in the South, particularly, uh, you still see this. Uh, it's like churches will put out signs that says, revival, March 11th through the 15th. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like in the context of this conversation, that sounds kind of ludicrous, right? But but uh, like, it's going to happen. Come show up at 11 at 7 o'clock. But what they mean is we're going to work for revival. We're going to preach evangelistically. We're going to invite unchurched friends and we're going to have a revival in that sense, intentionally and proactively through the calls to repentance and evangelistic effort. And so you still see that today. So you have, you have two types of revivals. You have the classic, uh, which is like the, the awakenings. And then you have uh, the proactive, almost uh, uh, technique driven ones, which are events, you know, that you might could say Billy Graham, what were they called? Sure. A revival. You're going to a Billy Graham revival. And, and so uh, and so that's what we're talking about with that. So again, that would be small r revival in a sense, if you would. Um, but um, but you know, let me but let me let me let me go further with this. The pe- people who are so hungry for this, I, I it, it like wanting revival in our land and revival in their churches, and and almost as if that the only way it can happen is if there's some supernatural top down something the Holy Spirit just does that cannot be explained. And we just have to wait for that to happen and pray for that to happen. Um, listen, nobody wants that more than me, but that kind of passive approach, you just do not find in scripture that kind of passive. Let's just wait for revival. No, 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 no. You are to work for revival. You are to work for lost people. You're to be involved in evangelism. You're to be calling people to repentance. And, and, and it's like, it's like, you know, Every day, a church has the opportunity to be engaged in the revivalistic work of the Holy Spirit. Whether it starts, whether it's small R or capital R, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all revivalistic. It's all everything that we loved and wanted from Asbury in the first great awakening, second great awakening. It's just like if a church will not be turned inward, but be turned outward, if we'll care about lost people, if our hearts will break for the poor, if we'll call sin, sin, if we'll work for social justice, if we'll be a biblically functioning community, if we'll be an Acts 2, 42 through 47 church, if we'll actually, if the church will be the church, we don't have to pray for revival. We don't have to wait for revival. It it will happen. And, and one of the things that I often will say to people at Mac, because I, I, if I have any concern about Mac among many, but if I have one in particular, one in, is that so much of that we're experiencing here is, is too commonplace for them. Mm, yeah. It's like, okay, we had a baptism service and 100, 150 people got baptized. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. 100 and 150 people just got baptized. Do you realize that the average church baptizes one or two a year? Right. Do you realize that 100... You know, do you realize that that's and, and we're having multiple baptism services a year? Do you realize that hundreds of baptisms a year are like revival? Yeah. An awakening? 
and 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 yet and yet at the same time i'm almost glad it's commonplace for mac you know at the same time i i you know, I, I'm also happy because it, it should be an expectation that when the church is being the church and when you're doing things, you are experiencing Acts 2, 42 through 47. And what's Acts 2, 47? The last verse, and Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. It's meant to be commonplace. So in that sense, I'm not, you know, upset with Mac. It's just, you know, it's like, you're, you know, and then I, I like I do, I say, okay, it is supposed to be commonplace, you know. Uh, we never should lose our awe and wonder and gratitude, but it is meant to be daily. And so I, I, um, I, I do feel like um, we can, we shouldn't be passive. We can be doing the work of this, and we don't have to be waiting on anything. I just, and it, and it bothers me deeply that churches will look outside of themselves as if somehow the answer is there. If only we could bottle that or experience that or get that person here or do something like that, and and as opposed to becoming and being the church that the Holy Spirit is longing for and longing to work through. Well, you may have partially answered my next question then, because I was wondering, based on what I've been reading about in the last month, like other churches and other colleges have claimed to have had similar experiences um, to what we saw at Asbury. So I was curious, like, are revivals contagious? That sounds like a weird word. Sociologically, sociologically, yes. I mean, there's a lot of religious experiences and, and not just religious experiences, but other kinds of things that uh, are supposedly contagious, you know, and, and, and can kind of spread almost like a hysteria can spread and people mimic it. Some people feel like the Salem witch trials were this. Some people feel like other things were this. Uh, some people feel like uh, certain revivals have been this where people just um, almost mimic. Um, and so, um, but I don't think spiritually, you know, the Holy Spirit does what he wants to do, but normally the way revivals have broken out classically is, is that it literally is a movement of the Holy Spirit where people are, are repenting and, con- and confessing and people are evangelizing and you're spreading that you have this, this, this fervor, this ardor, that this, this, this courage to proclaim the gospel and people re- receiving that. And so in that sense, it spreads in that sense, it's contagious in the sense that people are taking up the mantle to, to proclaim the gospel. But as far as just, well, let's all get together in a chapel and let's just stay in it for 12 hours and see if we can stay 14 hours and see if we can replicate this. I don't think that's the point. And I don't think that's exactly even what the Holy Spirit had in mind. It was never meant to be a a kind of an in-house worship fest as much as true revival is always breaking out in repentance. It's breaking out in evangelism. It's breaking out in social justice. Um, And not just something that is just, you know, contained like that in a particular setting or chapel. So I'm not wanting to cast doubt on anyone or any group, but uh, there is there is a sense of people seeking out these experiences, seeking out this kind of attention. And it can be a bit dangerous where it becomes more about them than God, more about us than God, and more about our fame and God's fame, and more about, hey, look at what's happening here versus what, you know, God may be doing, you know. Um, uh, but... Uh, and, and I also think that we would be remiss if we didn't bring up how Satan can get involved in this and in distortion and things. And and I don't want to name names of particular revivals, but some have taken a, some criticism where they've called themselves a revival. And yet, uh, and, and people try to copy the enthusiasm and people flock to it as spiritual tourists and fill it and keeps going for days, but it's not, it's more a show that's just kept going, you know, and um, they just keep selling tickets to, for lack of a better way of talking about it and then it gets marked by all kinds of strange behavior and one in particular i'm thinking about was marked by people making animal noises Mm. and things and i'll just be really honest as a theologian 
that uh, animal noises are not a mark of the Holy Spirit, but a mark of the occult. Mm. And so I just think we have to be really careful about these things. Okay, well, so you mentioned like they can just go on and on past the time that they should go on. So we talked about how the Asbury revival was officially ended a couple of weeks ago. And of course, not surprising. The gatherings. gatherings. Be real careful with the nomenclature. Okay, well, that's important. Yeah, so... So yeah, the, the the president, Dr. Kevin Brown, he has certainly gotten heat about that decision. People saying like, how could you, you know, um, like what makes you think that you can like end the work of the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit started it, the Holy Spirit should end it. Like, can you talk more about that? Yeah, I'm totally on his side. I mean, I'm totally on his side. And <laughs> maybe as a, as a former president of a graduate school, I, I get a little bit about what it's like to be in that position. But I mean, you're talking about Wilmore, Kentucky, 6,000 population, and they were having 30, 40, 50,000 people descending on it. They, they didn't even have, like one person said, we don't even have the toilets. <laughs> you, know, we, we, you know, it's like, and it's not like we're, we're bottling, we're trying to prevent a revival. These are not people who are experiencing the revival with these students. They're, they're, they're tourists. And they're just wanting to take selfies. They're just wanting to, to, to show up because I heard there's something happening. And, and Christians are notorious for that out of insecurity. It's like you see this in, in towns and in cities. It's like, um, you know, like a, there's a hot new youth pastor. And so there's like this migratory thing of all the people leaving churches from that town to go to where that hot pastor is. And, oh, there's a hot worship leader over there. So we're all going to make a migratory pattern up to that hot pastor or here or hot, you know, worship leader. And on and on it goes. It's like it's like we're terrified of not being part of the it. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of what's happening, of being in on what on what's going on. And I think that Asbury suffered from that. I mean, I had heard from several people where just people said, oh, let's just get in a plane and go. Why? Let's, you know, sounds interesting, curious. Let's find out what's going on, you know. Um, and that was the only motivation. And it just, you know, if you want to know who wrecked the revival, um, you know, it, it wasn't president. Yeah. It was it was it was him and town leaders saying, my goodness. And And I thought if you read his statement, I thought it was really well done and well crafted. Totally supported the students, totally supported what had happened. I mean, they, they went out of their way serving these students, serving people selflessly day after day after day, putting in 18, 20 hour shifts, not getting sleep, trying to make food, trying to do things. They just selflessly put everything aside, classes and tests and jobs and families and lives. And they just I mean, I think that that, that they just deserve like just all kinds of rave reviews. Yeah. And finally, it was like the, the city officials were begging them, we, we got to do something. We can't we can't we can't even function as a town. It became like a really out of out of like a Woodstock and that got about as crazy as Woodstock. And um, or am I dating myself again? Let me, do you mean to me tell you? OK, OK. <laughs> I'll let you Google that on Wikipedia or something. I know. So um, I know. But um, so. Um, you know, I, I do think that um, that they they were and he said, we hope this spreads to other places and we hope this spreads. And we hope that our children, our kids take this to other places and it's changed their lives. So it wasn't shutting down a revival, it was shutting down. Hey, can we not make ourselves a Mecca? And 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 we've got to get back to life, even though we'll drink from this for a long time. And our, this this has an effect and this is going to continue on and even when they closed down the chapel they still opened it up for another venue and so i i, I just thought that was i thought it was handled about as well as could be expected sure. um and so um but uh the goal was for any re- revival is not just a worship event in a particular chapel but it really is for it to break out in evangelism and social justice and, and change lives and um and i think that's what the president encouraged and i think that was the appropriate thing to do 
And um, so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't fault him. And I, and I felt like the, the, the people who critiqued it um, may, may needed to have looked a little closer what they were having to deal with there. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a really helpful conversation. I, I hope it has been for our listeners too. I just keep thinking of, you know, certainly we don't want to make the mistake that you warned us of, of, you know, taking something that is meant to be descriptive and making it prescriptive for how we do ministry. But at the same time, it is really informative or maybe encouraging that to see that people really do have a thirst and a hunger for an encounter with God. And so, um, I mean, that should inform the way that we pray. And I mean, in some ways, yes, in the way that we do ministry, but um, yeah, and even just kind of praying that maybe not a similar kind of revival may take place, but that, like you said, like we would notice where God is already working amongst our midst and then getting on board with, with what he's doing. So yeah. And, and also, and also, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not, I totally agree with what you're saying also, but, uh, but not to, always point the finger at somebody, some institution, some church, some organization, some denomination, like, why aren't we having revival? Why aren't I experiencing the spirit? Why aren't, why aren't I having this experience? Almost like it's somebody else's responsibility for you to have a good point. And I really rebel against that. Mm -hmm. I feel like my, my relationship with God is my responsibility. My intimacy, my, my closeness, uh, whether I spent time with him this morning, whether I prayed today, what, how, the degree to which I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and not, or not, that's my deal. Mm. And it's not somebody else's responsibility to make sure that I have an experience with the Holy Spirit. It's not somebody else's responsibility to make sure that I'm close uh, or that if I'm hungering for that, it's not somebody else's fault because I have direct access to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I have direct access and so there's nobody that is in in my way or thwarting that. And so I just need to make. I think we need to make sure that we're not that we're not. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I should. Start. I was say, <laughs> this sounds like the topic for a really good future podcast episode. So I no. might jot that down. Um, but we'll end our conversation here for now. I think all of our conversations are are really helpful and informative. So we hope you'll tune in again next week um, for another one. Thanks for joining us.